0: these uh, two first line of treatment, about half of patients are spasm-free.
1: Fellow sapiens, so many epilepsies do affect babies, and these include infantile epilepsy syndromes. In this week's Epilepsy Sparks Insights podcast, we hear from the fabulous Stéphane Va, a leading epileptologist and child neurologist from Paris, France, who tells us all about what infantile epilepsy syndromes are, challenges and diagnoses, different treatments, and of course, research.
0: Thanks for the invitation. Uh, my name is Stéphane Ovin. I'm a child neurologist. I'm mostly an epileptologist for children and adolescents. I'm working in Paris in Robert-Debray Children's Hospital.
1: Today, we're focusing on um, so infantile uh, epilepsy syndromes. Can you tell everyone a bit about what they are and what that means, please?
0: I mean, there are challenges for the diagnosis because in this age group, there are a lot of non-epileptic paroxysmal event, I mean student movement or things like that, that could be misdiagnosed for epilepsy. And the other way around, because of its, this high frequency, sometimes physicians don't think it could be epilepsy. And because of that, it's a particular age, and also the fact that there is probably a misunderstanding on the fact that epilepsy also arises at that age. There is sometimes delay in diagnosis, There are different syndromes some of them are very rare and some are more frequent for example focal onset uh, seizures epilepsy with focal onset seizures that is very frequent it's also very frequent in this age group
1: could you give us some examples of what those might be yeah sure one of
0: the rare epilepsy but is frequent among the infants is infantile spasm syndrome what we used to call in the past west syndrome
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, it's kind of particular because Um, for the patient, there is nothing like an absence or nothing like convulsion. Mm -hmm. And because of that, there is a very frequent uh, misdiagnosis. And then it's like cluster of contraction that is repeating, and there is no impairment of the awareness. Then sometimes the uh, baby is is crying because of that, because he feels bad because of the repetition of the movement. And then it's frequently misdiagnosed as GI, like reflux, or, or constipation or even colic and then because of that there is a delay in the diagnosis and it's something important because we know that one of the prognostic factors for both epilepsy and development is related to the time to effective treatment. Then so it's something very important and there is a lot of work around awareness about infantile spasm syndrome like with videos showing typical uh, a cluster of spasms that has been promoted by a family association, actually, and I think it's a very important movement as well.
1: Yeah, and just for our listeners and viewers, I actually know somebody personally whose son this happened to, and he, he said exactly the same thing. People thought it was GI and sent them back home, and it was you know, infantile spasms. And so just quickly delving slightly more into that, when you, if people are, or babies are not diagnosed early, what could be the consequence of that?
0: There is different consequences but one of them is the fact that the higher uh, the the sooner is the better for control all the seizure because we know in this syndrome the percentage of drug resistant uh, epilepsy is higher than in the population of the epilepsy patient we know that the drug resistance is around 20-30% for the full population of patients while in infantile spasm syndrome it could be up to 60% then, if we want to optimize, then it's something very important. But it's also important for uh, the cognitive impact. We know that uh, this uh, spasm, infantile spasm syndrome, has a particular impact on the development. Oh. And we know that a significant proportion of patients might, might be left with uh, a developmental delay later. Even if the spasm stopped, then we know that the sooner is also the better for the cognitive outcome.
1: Okay, cool. And so what challenges do remain for babies with infantile spasm syndromes?
0: There are challenges for infantile spasm syndrome for new treatment. It's now quite clear what are the first two lines of treatment, but there is definitively a research gap here because with this uh, two first lines of treatment, about half of patients are spasm-free, but still in the spasm-free we know also that patients might have impact on the development. Then we need more anti spasm treatment because they are still fifty percent, meaning third line and fourth line and but also we need probably disease modifying treatment, meaning you change the course of the disease, coming back to natural course of the development. Of course it's a challenge not only for infancy spasm, it's a challenge for all the epilepsy, not having only anti seizure, anti-symptom treatment, but have more border treatment effective on the process of the disease and it's something important as well for infantile spasm syndrome.
1: What are the effective treatments that we do have for infantile spasm syndrome?
0: The first two treatments and then according to the history of the country or to the availability of treatments is vigabatrin and steroids. Okay. Uh, in some countries steroid first and vigabatrin second, in some it's combination. Um, of, of both treatment, because it has been shown that the combination is better than just one of them sequentially with the other one in, as a second line. Uh, this is the two definitively first two lines. And then now what we are doing for the third line, I think most of the center are using the ketogenic diet. Ah,
1: and do you know what, when you said um, steroids, that just sounds crazy to me and probably other people, because I just think of people who are going to the gym and using steroids for, for their muscles. How does steroids work when it comes to treatment for infantile spasms? <laughs>
0: actually, it's a very important question. We actually don't clearly know <laughs> how it works. Okay. In steroids, there are two types of steroids. I mean, um, ACTH could be one of them. Oral steroid could be one of them. There are some data suggesting that it could be the same, but they are looking at the methods. We have stronger evidence at some point for ACTH, and for example, the American guideline suggests uh, ACTH first. But for, because of the cost, it's not according to country. It's not always the first line treatment. Then ACTH could be one of the mechanisms because it has been shown. In animal models that injection of CRH that is basically in the uh, hypothalamic uh, axis uh, something that is above ACTH and we think that by putting ACTH we decrease CRH that is a hormone above ACTH and ACTH in animal models induce seizures but we could also think that it's a, it could be derivative for neurosteroids acting on the GABA pathway, meaning increasing the inhibitory uh, trends. And then also uh, we have also argument for steroid as anti-inflammatory, and there are some evidence suggesting that in infantile spasm during the active phase of spasm there is ongoing inflammatory processes. But we, to, be, to be honest. Don't really know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, okay.
0: And sometimes it's better to know that it works even if you don't know how it works. Let's for example, let's think about the ketogenic diet. We have a lot of argument about, you know, small pieces of the puzzle, how it could work, but the full view of the puzzle is still unclear. It's
1: so interesting. So what what are we researching when it comes to infantile spasms and treatments and etc.?
0: I think now what is important probably for uh, the research in infantile spasm syndrome is to understand underlying mechanism to have more focused treatment. Of course, to be able to have treatment, but we know that infantile spasm syndrome, it's definitely in kind of the epilepsy field, it's really the view of what is a syndrome. Mm-hmm. I mean, a syndrome is common symptoms, EEG, uh, uh, type of seizures, and it's what we have in infantile spasm syndrome, but it could be a large diversity of etiology sometimes it could be related to some brain injuries that happen at birth or sick of premature baby could be genetic could be malformative could be sometimes also metabolic i mean they are like a large uh, diversity of the etiology sometimes the, the uh, cause of infantile spasm syndrome implies that the phenotype it's a bit different for example let's think about a patient that had a perinatal stroke or have like a very focal Uh, abnormal brain development. In addition to spasm, you can have focal onset seizures, plus the EEG feature could be very focal, and then at some point um, the phrenotype I mean the seizure type, plus the EEG abnormality could be very suggesting of the etiology. Then I think we have to work more on that just to uh, go quickly to the etiology, plus because it's different etiology even it's the same syndrome to start to look more in detail because maybe one of the research gap of uh, the uh, gap for efficacy is because we are treating everybody like under the same umbrella the same way but for some etiology maybe treatment specific to the etiology could be more effective so
1: how are you researching all of this then what are you look yeah obviously this is the the sort of you're trying to get these answers but how are you researching it for the etiology
0: driven uh, it should be a collective effort. If we even, you know, in large centers with a l- lot of new patients, unfortunately, every year, we are not able to build like very, very large uh, cohorts to address this etiology specific. But we should also still look under the umbrella. And for example, it's part of our research now that we are uh, a bit working in the clinical side, but mostly working in the lab is the fact that spasm is something very special, or at least infantile spasm syndrome is something very special to the infantile brain. It doesn't happen in children. It doesn't happen in adults. Spasm, epileptic spasm is a seizure type. It could be seen sometime later, but infantile spasm syndrome is something specific to infants. And then what we are trying to, to look at is the fact that the neurotransmission is changing over time during brain development. And it's not the same neurotransmission at three months, at six months, or at eight months or later. And then looking at what is changing, we are trying to target like specific changing in the neurotransmission to be more active and to be like more specific of what we are doing. Even it's kind of strange. We are looking of how to target some subunit change in the NMDA receptor, because we know that in the early brain development, there is kind of a higher efficiency of the NMDA pathway, that is the excitatory part of the neurotransmission, and it's related to changes in the composition of the MDMA receptor with the subunit, and we are targeting we are trying to target this changing to be more effective at some age.
1: Wow. It's really yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And thank you so much for joining us, Stefan. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Stéphane for educating us and introducing many of us, no doubt, um, when it comes to infantile epilepsy syndromes. You can find Stefan on Twitter or LinkedIn. Links are on the website. Or indeed, actually, you can check out the EpiCare website where you can learn loads more about the topics discussed.